Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. We essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. But this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? What are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Our website is invisible.co, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Drew Vo. He is an operations manager at Invisible, and uh, he joined recently, and I had this strange idea, hopefully it's going to work out, of basically inviting uh, new people who had just joined to come on the podcast and give their beginner's mind aspect of what it's like at Invisible. So welcome to the show, Drew. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Excited to be here. What's the most interesting thing you've learned at, about Invisible over the past week or so? The most interesting thing... Is it fair to say that Cameron and Francis are cousins? <laughs> I, I didn't even know that either. So I, I didn't know it until somebody with the na both the name Pedrasa and Polysbon commented something. And I, I had known there was some sort of connection before, but I didn't realize that there were cousins before. So that is a very interesting and unique thing. Both of us learned that this week. It is fascinating. How did you get involved in, in this with this crazy group of contrarians? Yeah, I feel like that story is simple i was looking around for a role i had gone through the wave of company tech layoffs in 2022 and yeah it was december the worst time i think to go through that experience with the holidays and such and then after about half a year of a lot of life changes decided to get back into the workforce and found invisible on wellfound formerly angelist i think I didn't even know that AngelList had pivoted or did they get acquired or did they just change the name? I think they changed the name. Yeah. Just to focus on a few other things, but I don't, yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. And so you found it and what attracted you to Invisible? Let's see. I think it was the application itself. I think anyone that went through that, the typical channels, that application and the questions really stick out to you. On top of that, of course, it's Invisible is working a lot in the AI space that's very prominent. And so just the shininess yeah. that was enticing. I also was intrigued of the, the, the possibility of getting back into more of a startup space. I hearken back to the days when I had joined a startup. I had worked at a company called Flexport back when I was employed 350-ish. And just remembering those times, being able to build stuff really quick and just the camaraderie that you get out of that environment, I thought that'd be awesome to get back into. I had gone through many iterations after Flexport of startups that were much smaller and then companies that were much larger. I just feel like 
bad experience I had at Flexport and now at Invisible have been that nice little. Yeah. And because there, there's so much, there's so much opportunity, we could speak at it from a philosophical lens of this company is this entity and that entity is not a human being, but some people treat it as a human being. It's, it has laws that are related to being a human being and being an entity <laughs> and stuff like that, but it's made up of a bunch of, a whole bunch of different employee, uh, like people. And then those people do things. And for some reason, when they join together, they become more than, than, well, in a good company, they become more than each individual is able to do. So they, they create something that's more than just the sum of its parts. And in a bad company, it becomes less, which is, which is wild. I hope I don't have to ever experience that except for a month just to experience it, but probably not for a month more than that. But um, yeah, you have this like company and then there are like stages of the company, as we talked about, a good company is on the rise. Bad companies usually end up fall, and that's when you have more scarcity and, and all these crazy things where it becomes really hard to do things. And then you get to a big company, which is just moving, maybe growing a bit, maybe small and growing. And that's the big company that you're talking about. Then you have a small company of five people, and that's just total chaos. How big were these companies that you joined when they were smaller? Uh, yeah. So yeah, again, Flexport was 350 when I had joined. The other much earlier startup, you were about... 50 full-time and yeah that was chaotic that company doesn't exist any that's one of those stories <laughs> that yeah and so the big company how big was the big company uh, 1800 worldwide yeah mm -hmm. yeah it definitely got felt lost in the mix and i think notably about them they had become a remote first company but I felt that if you hadn't joined, if you had joined the company prior to the pandemic, you probably felt more included and you had some sort of base in the culture. After the fact, even though, again, everything was remote first, they had some offices for you to connect with people in person. There was, I felt, an obvious difference in experience. And so coming to Invisible, where it's always been remote, it's been refreshing, this experience. I often tell people who ask me about my experience so far, it's like the little things when you see you have your giant Zoom meetings, but the engagement in just the chat alone makes you feel excited to be there. It's not performative. It truly is just engagement with and what's jokes. going on. And jokes. Yeah. Some jokes. Yeah. The jokes. <laughs> are the jokes. So this is, I should say this, this is the largest company by far that I've ever experienced. I've either started companies or been part of startups that are not very large and had a tendency to fail. And so it's very interesting for me to be in this experience because I have nothing to map it against really, except for my own, which is reading about big companies. And so Invisible is a very big company for me. And are, is the jokes, because there's lots of jokes, is the jokes something that you would also find in these other startups? I would f say a lot. It's, it was a lot more rare. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, it was... The typical, I think, behavior you would see in these companies that aren't used to being remote, like the camera's turned off, everyone's on mute. You're just talking to a wall if you're in those settings. We're here, it's pretty much the opposite. And I love that it's very top-down in that behavior. So it's not leadership asking the rest of the company to behave a certain way. They really embody it and set that example. So I love seeing a director of VP engaging in the chat adding comments, adding emojis, joking around. It just makes me feel more comfortable to be my silly self in, in a meeting setting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that about it. Okay. And so what you're saying about remote work is so fascinating because I've been studying remote work for a long time and I had done an interview with Sid Sibranch, the CEO of GitLab about, and GitLab was the first example that I had seen of a remote first company that really scaled and really got it right in how to do a remote company. And Invisible is the second example. I would say that GitLab is the prime example that everybody's heard of how to do remote work. And Invisible is the second one that nobody's heard of about how to do remote work, but they really got it. Uh, we we have gotten it. And it's and it, I think you're exactly right. I think a whole bunch of companies failed to make the transition. And I should go do a study of those companies that didn't fail to do the to the transition that were able to go and figure out how to actually switch to a remote first from like a trauma-driven experience of being pushed into remote work. But I think you're exactly right that it's just, it's so hard to, once you're in the middle of a stream, to switch to this wildly different thing and you need to start it from the beginning. And it's so fascinating. If you have anything to say about that, let me know. Otherwise, I'll continue on and find some other random questions to ask you. Yeah, I think, yeah, we can continue on. Cool. Okay. Okay. So we've got this kind of, we've talked about larger companies, smaller company, medium company, invisible transcends a lot of categorization. What do you think about all the humanity stuff that we talk about? Has that ever existed in other companies? Like the, I don't know if you've seen Lightning and Zohar talking about all the classics and stuff like that. Does that, is that new for you? It is very new to me. And coming from a biotech science-y background, it's definitely out of my wheelhouse, but in in, in an amazing way, it hearken. Let me sorry. My dog gets really attached. <laughs> yes, you're here. Yeah, it it's been such a different approach to the workplace. I feel. I even think about how in my onboarding training there was a whole module about. I think it, they called it something else, but it's basically mindfulness, um, and understanding your thinking and why you think a certain way and then applying that to the workplace so like how do you how are you reacting to a certain situation and why that is that way you have better control so that piece i think there's just this other layer here that understands we are not just the outputs of our work product we really can embrace the human experience of being in a workplace and the crazy dynamics and the diversity of it all and weave that into our every day. So that way we can probably see a, we can see a, I don't know, a, a more long-term place here. You're not having to mold yourself to the workplace. It's the workplace is like becoming slowly part of you and how you live your life. Mm, mm, mm. Fascinating. And what's, how much of your workday, and this might not be a good question because it might not resonate, but if it does resonate, what is one thinker that you've recently come across through your, this engagement with the humanities inside of Invisible? I'm sorry, a thinker? Like a classicist or like Plato or I don't know, David Hume, or have you been introduced to any new kind of philosophical roots based on this experience? Uh, I, I will say I haven't completely engaged on all of the resources that are available. That brings like, another question into it, which is that I, I feel like one of the ways that Invisible has managed to figure out remote work is that they, because one of what is the problem of remote work is the fact that you have no idea what anybody else is doing. You're not in the office, you can't see them. And so one of the kind of subtle ways, I'm not sure how intentional it is, it just might just be the people involved, 
uh, but they give you a lot of work uh, to to begin with, right? Uh, there's a yeah. high a high workload in that first week. Actually, that's a great way to go. Uh, can you explain what your first week was like and what your responsibilities were? Uh, yeah, I actually think my onboarding experience was pretty smooth compared to the typical story, especially for a startup. Yes, I was given a lot to to learn, to take in. The onboarding now does include a lot of modules, a lot of people to meet with, for sure. But I wasn't necessarily thrust with responsibilities up front, hmm. whereas I think some other operations managers even now maybe had to based on circumstance. I've been really blessed to come onto a team that was a little more mature, that had a fair number of managers already. So when I came in that first week, they were very intentional with telling me, just absorb. You don't let you need to read. We're going to put you through the training for our very agents and what they go through. So that way, build that sympathy and understanding and that credibility even when you start to take on responsibility. Okay, that's fascinating. And so operations manager, how many people are you managing? As of right now, I have gotten two leads and I don't even know how many <laughs> agents are under them yet. This transition happened late last week, uh, so I'm getting to that. But so far, I'm really excited. I've been given this opportunity to, yeah, ease into it. I really should have five leads under myself mm -hmm. when I'm at scale, but right, they've been able to carefully ramp this up to make sure that I'm not going to get burnt out within that, that first quarter that I think some folks go through in a startup role. Again, I'm feeling really blessed. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that speaks to how interesting Invisible is as a company because Invisible is like, there is a hierarchy, but it, it's not a really like strong hierarchy. Anybody can go and talk to Francis and be like, hey, actually, I don't think this is working and like that. that. So there is a hierarchy, but you can easily transcend it as long as there's a good faith there. And, but it's also very decentralized. So a lot of the different teams are acting in very different ways in which for bring into knowledge management, which makes, so knowledge management for my listeners, I gave Drew a little bit of intro. Knowledge management is essentially what we do is we try to map the company and we try to break down silos that don't need to be there, but then also keep silos that do need to be there because there's this information overload that people have. You don't want a whole bunch of information going from one silo to the next if it distracts from the, the common purpose. And so one of the challenges uh, of doing knowledge management invisible is they're so decentralized that, and also the fact that invisible transcends the original startup idea for the past 20 to 30 years, which is specialized, specialized, do this one thing, create this one piece of software for this one client and do that over and over again and try to fit it to all these other clients. Invisible basically will take any clients, uh, although it's changing now because now our scales is changing, but we're still vertical agnostic. And so we can do a whole bunch of different things. So mapping out this organization has been a wild intellectual challenge for me, and it's going to get crazier and crazier. And I wonder, actually, we could move that over to a conversation about AI enablement as well. Yeah. What's your take on AI enablement? What does it do? AI enablement. My understanding so far is it's about how to holistically implement AI into a company's workflow, into their product. Just the idea of having AI and large language models into the workplace, figuring out, yeah, where does that fit? How do we make sure it's something that actually provides value to our customer or their customers? But that is such a broad term. There's a whole life cycle that goes into in implementing 
AI. So now that we're broadening our scope from just AI training, which is one piece of the puzzle, we are going to go the whole life cycle of AI or wherever gaps of that life cycle that our customer doesn't have just yet, we can plug in. Very interesting. Are you using AI? And if so, how? Oh yeah, my personal life, definitely. I was joking around that I actually used ChatGPT on my application. Okay. Invisible. Yeah, great. Yeah, I am a huge fan of ChatGPT. Again, with my science background, I've never been much of a writer. I know I, what I want to say. I'm, I love bullet points. I feel like every email should be written in bullet points, to be honest. But yeah, so I, I remember writing down, okay, this random question, I think everyone here will hark back to the pirate versus the captain, I think, or something like that. I knew who what I wanted to hit on, but I didn't have the, the brain power or maybe the time even to write out a whole essay. Uh, so yeah, spit it in um, to ChatGBT and... It was a pretty lovely uh, uh, piece of writing. I then had to go back and edit it, of course, um, to refine uh, and make sure I'm truly getting the nuances of my ideas across. But yeah, and now I'm, so I'm using ChatGPT for a lot of a lot more formal emails. I would say checking for anything that might come up controversial, grammar. Uh -huh. Yeah, super helpful, and that way I have more time to get myself organized engage with the rest of my team a lot more instead of just sitting there for hours. I'm one of those people that will sit for hours just trying to refine an email. So it's definitely sped up that part of my work day. What I like, what I really liked about it, like about it is that it helps me with the blank page syndrome of just sitting mm. there with a blank page. Now, if I'm very motivated, uh, we're just, I just had interviewed Francis and Zohar earlier about lightning. So I got the lightning in the background for those. <laughs> and so they were talking about lightning getting inspired. And so when I'm inspired by that lightning bolt of inspiration, then I can just write and write. But if I don't know about a subject and I'm like hesitant, it, it can get me over that hump really quickly, which I think a lot of people struggle with. Fascinating. And you said that you used it to write the essay. Very interesting. Anything that you've been found benefit in terms of your work life at Invisible? Are there any ways that it's, I guess you said, writing emails? Do you have to, do you have to do any data transfer or are you talking to your agents about it? Or are your agents using it at all? Yeah, so far. Oh yeah, definitely. Again, I, I'm so glad I went through a lot of the trainer training because a little bit of what you have to do is research. You have to do a lot of writing yourself to explain your rationale when you're training a model. While it's not our primary tool, it's definitely something to help with decreasing the work time and the, the, the turnaround time on your work. But otherwise, yeah, administratively, I think it's a transformative tool to just speed up the more mundane tasks we have. Mm. And... So I would love to go into what your background of science, because that sounds really interesting. What did you do uh, with your science background? Uh, yeah, I originally studied bioengineering, biotechnology, working with cell culture. I had done research for about a couple of years and just didn't like the lab space, the work environment, decided to pivot to business. I, so I went to business school, but focused in the life sciences so I can say I'm still leveraging yeah. all that money I spent on my bachelor's degree. <laughs> And then I got to, so that led me to biotech manufacturing and operational excellence. But then even then the biotech industry, there's just so much ambiguity with access to medicine, pricing. I 
again, needed to pivot and finally got off that train. <laughs> I would love to get into some speculation with you, fine, if you don't want to go there, but I'm fascinated by this evolving world of biotechnology. Uh, and a lot of people are talking about labs, like in the same way that uh, Steve Jobs built Apple computer inside the garage. They're talking about soon enough, we're going to be able to have the, the, those crazy bio, bioscientists, startup entrepreneurs in the middle of a, a lab creating new medicines and such, although the FDA probably will figure out how to stop that at some points. But then I'm in Argentina, just across the border, there's Paraguay. Paraguay is a totally unregulated place and mm -hmm. like all over the world, this could start happening soon. What are your takes on, is that going to happen? And how, if you want to go technical, we can talk about it. What is it? What are, when you're bioengineering, what are you actually doing? Yeah, especially in the, so there's two sides of, I would say the pharmaceutical industry. It's more of the biologics and then your pharmaceuticals. So your pharmaceuticals are the hard pills that you get, just a bunch of chemicals and stabilized into pill form. Biologics are essentially proteins. Proteins, as you may know, are super unstable. They need to be kept in very strict environments so that they, they maintain their structure. And you build these proteins by programming cells. There are free-floating cells in their own kind of liquid or medium. And they've been programmed to produce these proteins. And these proteins are supposed to address some therapeutic issue or, yeah, disease. And they're typically injected into patients. So why, going to your question then about building and working on this kind of work in your garage, I worked primarily in the biologic space. And again, it's highly uh, unstable. So I would imagine it being very difficult to do that type of work in a garage, the amount of equipment, power, and just the cleanliness that's involved. There is higher industries around the cleanliness of labs so that you maintain proper sanitization. You don't want to inject yourself with something that's impure. That's going to be terrible news for the patient. But where AI can come in is the before that, well before you're starting to get into the nitty gritty of lab work, you should, I think we're already at a point where, yeah, we are at a point already where we are modeling what proteins look like. If we programmed a cell a certain way, what type of protein would come out the other end and be able to predict that all within a model instead of having to do trial and error, very expensive trial and error in a lab space. Mm. So I imagine as AI is getting more sophisticated, the predictive models around creating biologics is only going to benefit that much more. So that could be super exciting. And that can be done in your garage. If you have that expertise, definitely. But like any other AI model work, as long as you have the uh, processing power, the possibilities are endless. Okay, that's so interesting because uh, what it's just, so much of the world is abstract. You mentioned there are whole giant companies that are dealing with the cleanliness of labs, and those companies are completely outside the view of consumers who are taking these pharmaceuticals, but they're a key component. And then there, there's a parallel, and I'm sure Flexport was part of this as well, is that just every product that we have, like my phone, has all of these things involved with it that are just totally outside my ability to to understand them. And I'd like to study this stuff. And then random person on the street who's using the phone has no idea of all the complexity, but that goes, and that goes back into the life itself. And you talked about programming cells, and I'm so interested to understand, uh, how do you program a cell to create a protein? 
Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So it goes down to the DNA of a cell, right? So that's how our own bodies work. Um, with our DNA, you have other proteins that are actually like reading your DNA and creating blueprints for the rest of your body to do its work. So you're essentially taking the cell who's living pretty happy and now using like splicing technology. And we can get into that. It's like another thing. You can alter the DNA of this free floating cell uh, so that it starts producing out certain proteins uh, that it wouldn't have before. And these protein isn't like deleterious to the cell at all. It's just spitting it out into the free floating medium or the liquid. And then from there, it's all about how do you then harness that protein and uh, in a way ruining it. Oh, interesting. Okay. See, because you said harness, then I was actually thinking of harvest. How do you harvest those proteins? So it spits out. So you got the cells creating proteins by how you're modifying the DNA. And then it's mm -hmm. proteins. And then those proteins are just hanging out in this. And so if I'm imagining like a factory that's doing this, are there just a bunch of Petri dishes? And then somebody goes and collects each one from the Petri with the cell. How do you actually get all of those proteins? Yeah. And sorry. Yeah. The dream actually is harvest. I don't know why I said harvest. Uh, uh, <laughs> so you're on the money there. But yeah, so these, these cells are actually not on Petri dishes. They're in giant tanks. Mm -hmm. So if you think about breweries and they have those giant tanks in them, they're full of cells, not mammalian cells, mm -hmm. uh, but cells nonetheless, instead of creating proteins at breweries are creating alcohol. Yeah, so it's very similar in that regard. You'll actually see a lot of biotechnologists have their own like home breweries because it's very science. But then you'll harvest that liquid from the tank and through crazy methods of like filtration, you can have, I, I believe in like chemical filtration to, to isolate your end protein. And of course, you'll suspend that in a different kind of fluid till you get your final product. Okay, wild. Okay, and then you get a final product. And how many different types of cells are there? Ones in use bio, in biotechnology. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I know how to answer that question anymore. Or Typically, are they uh, interesting ones? They're generally they're mammalian cells that, they're, that they've obtained. I forget the origins of all of them. <laughs> but again, like companies will have strict patent protections on their like own cell line and that they've derived and licensing onto someone else's. Wow. Yeah. Fast a lot of content there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's take this back to AI. Cause you had mentioned something really interesting, which was that you can't, you're probably not going to have those huge bats because uh, of the cleanliness factor in your garage, but you can have some software engineer or some bio bioengineer who's learned how to use software and used AI to do that inside of their bell, inside of their garage. And there's the modeling aspect. Is there any, anywhere else besides just straight up modeling these cells in their lifetime where AI will fit into biotechnology in general, giving you have some experience in that industry? Yeah, definitely. Just like modeling the body and how it works. Mm. Again, right now, a lot of the drugs, either being pharmaceuticals or biologics, it's a lot of trial and error, right? So you don't know if whatever you're programming the cell to do, is it going to last and, and come out the other side the way you want it to? But what if we can also take it further where you say you have a stable drug, a medicine, 
you then go through, again, very expensive clinical trials in animals and humans to see the efficacy and the safety of these proteins. And just imagine how much cost you would save if then you can put, okay, based on this protein, putting it into this model of the average human body, or you can probably model millions, billions of type of types of humans. How would this drug react in these humans, right? You could get to a point where this whole drug discovery mm. process is obsolete. Because you can get to a point where you've modeled every, every possible scenario uh, to get the medicine and the cure that you're looking for. It has that unlimited possibility for uh, personalized medicine, say for like right now, what, that's what they're trying to do with cancer, understanding that it's not a silver bullet, not one size fits all. You'd be able to tailor your regimen based yeah. on the person. Interesting. Okay. So the one question I want to ask about the accuracy of the models and like how, how accurate they, re they really are in doing it and what's the delta between the output of these models uh, and then how they actually, once they get tested in real life and whether there's any oppor opportunity to be maybe hubristic about that and whether that really works and stuff. But what you said about cancer treatments and personalized medicine is also really interesting because now with these LLMs, I already started to use ChatGPT to ask it. Because the gene genes are so interesting. And somebody had mentioned that the AOE2 gene was related to Alzheimer's. So if you have the AOE2 gene, you're much more likely to get Alzheimer's and you can see that. And so then I started to ask ChatGPT, oh, what are all the other important ones that we've figured out? And it's just, it can yeah. make this data so interesting. And so if you take that to your personalized medicine, what you're talking about, that it, you can put so much into it and it can get data that would take Either, either of us, like 100 years to figure out, it can do it within seconds. And it's just so fascinating to just understand all of the understandable parts of our existence and then get, but then there's that, then it comes back to that problem of the hallucination and the accuracy of the models and the errors of the models. And once we start trusting these models with our lives, what are all the, the things that could go wrong? Any of that stuff, if you have any interesting insights, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. And I, that's, from what I'm hearing in on the news and podcasts, like that is the top worry about any of this, right? Right now, we're, there's a lot of progress in the image recognition space of AI, right? And it's very clear that we should not be using AI to diagnose an X-ray, for example, MRI, because it just has not been tested enough. But I mean, the whole principle of an LLM is based on statistics, right? So as we get more data, the statistical significance is only going to get stronger mm. to a point that potentially in the future, yeah. I don't see, I, I can see a future where that is going to be the case, right? It's only a matter of time because time is going to give you more data. Yeah. So <laughs> I lost my train of thought there, but yeah, I think that's pretty much it. It's going to be a matter of time and to answer your question. Oh, yes. And, and, and gave me many further questions. The statistical model is so interesting because it's, I, I don't know if you've ever read the book Foundation by Isaac Asimov, but Isaac Asimov uh, talks about in the Foundation book, it's all about, it's like a, either far in the future or far away in another a universe where there's life and they're yeah. highly technologically advanced and they've come up with these computers and these methods to essentially predict the future based on statistics. And this guy, he figures out, okay, well, statistically, we're definitely heading for a dark age. And I can't stop that. I'm not going to be able to start the stop this dark age, but what I can do is speed up the decline and then speed up the kind of the, 
And it's, it feels like we're getting into that world where we now have like this super intelligence. There's no way to other say it. I don't think it's super intelligent in the say that in the same way that humans are, are intelligent. I think it's not existentially super intelligent or conscious, but I do think that it is super intelligence in terms of it's taken all of our intelligence distributed throughout these writings throughout history and, and been trained on them. And then we did a bunch of training, like we at Invisible did a bunch of training to actually figure out how to get, make this data like accessible and come out in the right way. And, and so I find it interesting that we're heading into this world where we'll have this super intelligence that is going to make less errors, like a lot less errors in the same way that self-driving cars are probably going to make less errors when it comes to actually driving than human beings. And I, it's just like highly speculative and a hard question, but that I don't know the answer to myself, but what is, what does that world look like when this is possible in five, 10 years? And I guess, yeah, like where I, you don't have to answer that question, but what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's theoretically, and this is what makes it so fun, right? It, it just like with like pr predicting how medicines affect the body, it's just a matter of time and data before you get to that point. I think with the self-driving cars, they're running into situations where the car doesn't know what to do, but it's just because it hasn't experienced it before. But if you give it time and more experience, what's to stop it from understanding and being able to maneuver any situation that it can come into? And so I, I do see that kind of scenario where in the future, yeah, we should be able to <laughs> almost predict the future. I would be very curious to, to hear from someone that is more of an expert in the field, uh, just to understand the limitations around that. Is there, like in theory, yeah, you can get all the data you need, but actually physically possible? I don't know. Yeah, in a world oh. of infinite possibilities. <laughs> Is it actually physically possible to get enough data to make predictive decisions about anything of importance is a very interesting question. And yeah. I think we're going to find out pretty soon. Yeah. Are you afraid of AI? Is there any fear inside of you of AI? There actually isn't. Maybe in a world where conscience becomes a thing with AI. <laughs> uh, but I, I love having all this like tech to help me in my daily life. I'm a huge proponent of Alexa and all these other smart gadgets around my house. If the government has my data, take it. If you're going to make my life easier, <laughs> sure. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> so I'm okay with it. Uh -huh. And no fear. And that's just, that's like the sort of government angle that if the government has your data, it doesn't really matter to you. Like that, there's nothing to fear there as well. What about you? Are you afraid that it will take your job? I don't think so. I, because I think we're seeing it now. And actually, we've always seen it, I think, in any other leap in technological advance, right? That just as a new tool comes in, yes, some jobs get obsolete, but it also creates jobs. So if we're just looking at past history and even what we're experiencing now with AI, like we have, we've opened up an entire market of remote work for our agents using AI, and that was not there before. It's just yet another example of job creation, even with onset of new technology. Mm, very interesting. Okay, Bill, so we'll take about five more minutes. Who at Invisible have you had the most interesting conversation with? Ooh, besides this one? Uh, <laughs> so I'm thinking of one, but I feel like I've had yet another 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, the one that really comes to mind right now is Fernando Turnigal. He, and this is like an overraining theme I think I've seen at Invisibles. For Fernando, or for, um, has lived such an amazing life so thus far and is continuing to just amaze, amaze me. He's been, I feel, at the forefront of so much technology and has this unabashed, like, fearlessness in exploring what else is out there? What else can I get my hands on? And I feel like we're so lucky to have someone like him at the helm of, at least for my team, like the, he's helping coordinate all the training for our agents. We couldn't ask for a better person. But going back to what I, I was thinking, like I, getting the backstory for everyone at Invisible is so fascinating. We have such diverse backgrounds at this company. And maybe it's because we do what is it not focus on but we do love our humanities here and i think that piece has opened the door to saying yes to different types of people and welcoming them welcoming them into our doors in the past it's always been yes i'm an ex-consultant yes i was at this company this tech company it, it, it very much felt the same story i got the same thinking but here i'm just so impressed with the amount of musicians, entrepreneurs, so many yeah. different types of people around the world who have now just converged to this. This is one entity that has so many possibilities to go for. I don't know. I, I feel like coming into Invisible, I have, I'm coming into a place that really truly is contrarian, is not afraid to break the rules, make something different, taking all the learnings we've seen from other companies and it's funny. So I, back in my past company, sometimes I just think, why are we doing it this way? Why do we have to hire this certain way? Why do we have to run our processes a certain way? For example, OKRs, I get the principle and I've rarely seen it implemented well. Mm -hmm. And here we're beginning, I feel like we, we've had it. I'm only a month in, but we've gone through OKR planning for Q4. Never have I seen a leadership that understood, okay, we're building something, so it's okay if certain metrics don't have like hard numbers that go with it. And it's I love this these small nuances of flexibility and breaking the mold just because we know better. So let's try it and see where we go. Yeah. Like last week, we were uh, Mark Ray was talking about his hiring principles, and it was so refreshing to hear all of these what I used to feel were very lofty ideas about hiring, just um, opening the doors, trying different methods of, of, uh, of changing this hiring experience. And he's actually doing it. And so I just feel like, yeah, we have so many different people here and it's because we've opened ourselves to the possibilities of what we think a company can be run like. And we know, and it's great that we know it's not going to be perfect, but that's okay. And I think that is really what drew me to in Invisible. I know I'm going on this like whole like roundabout thing. I'm just feeling so inspired. And I feel really lucky like, when I talk to a lot of my friends who are, they've seen me at my best and my worst when I talk about work and just the energy and the glow I'm getting 
from being at Invisible. It's it. They've been telling me so obvious this time around. And it's funny because we were just talking about the light, the lighting podcast getting inspired, and there was a question I didn't get a chance to answer, so I'll, or ask. So I'll ask it with this one, which is that you get this inspiration, you get this lightning strike, you can feel it here at Invisible. Invisible is full of it, but then there's also there's a there, not a negative of that as well, but there's an overwhelm of that. Oh, I feel too much energy. I can't actually go to sleep. Have you experienced any of that? <laughs> a little bit sometimes. I think with a lot of my work experience, I've taught myself to really focus on that work-life balance piece. Um, another thing which I feel like Invisible is really trying to and is making strides on, I do get excited a lot of the time. I will admit there are some nights where I'm just like tinkering on a, a new tool that we could use on my team, but it's all out of fun and experimentation. It is not because I have to. It is not because I have a deadline. Yeah. It's because... I want to try this out. I'm excited to see if it works, if it fails, and that's okay. But if it works, how I can share that with someone else to make their day better and extend that passion I'm feeling. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you, Drew, for coming on the show. And if anybody's listening to this outside of Invisible or even inside of Invisible, how can they get in touch with you? And what's the best way to get in touch with you? And not in terms of like email or anything like that, but framework of mind for getting in touch with you. Yeah, yeah. The technical details, yeah. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Drew Vo. I think I'm the second Drew at Invisible. So you're bound to find me. <laughs> uh, gosh, but approaching me, I'm really into the exploring the touchy-feely about organizations and how we're doing things. So anything that pushes that envelope and really gets to the heart of working, living with empathy, I would love to talk more about that. I'm always finding more details about that. So fascinating. So yeah, I would love to dive in more. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Stuart. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.